All right, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 18. Uh, if you grabbed one of our Bibles, the, the black CSB hardback Bibles from uh, the tables on either side of the room, you can find that on page 931. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible of your own, I want to encourage you to just keep that one and take it with you, take it home with you after you use it here uh, today. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And as we uh, continue our sermon series on our values here at Redeemer, today we're going to talk about humility as one of the things that we seek to prioritize as a church. Now, as you turn to Luke 18, I want to give you just a little bit of background context since we're jumping into the middle of the gospel here. Luke was a well-educated Greek doctor and one of Paul's traveling companions and co-laborers in gospel ministry. He's the only Gentile uh, uh, the only known Gentile author in the New Testament. He wrote the, the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. Luke's Gospel has been called the Gospel for the sinner and the outcast, and our passage today is just going to confirm that for us. Luke's Gospel shows how uh, Jesus' compassion in becoming a human being in order to save human beings from all walks of life. And show them the grace of God. It's the only one of the four Gospels that records uh, the accounts of the Good Samaritan, the prodigal son, Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, Jesus' conversation with the thief on the cross, and, and then this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that we're going to look at together this morning. This parable takes place during Jesus' final trip to Jerusalem, where he will soon be betrayed and arrested and tried and crucified. This is his final trip in uh, and he's going to his death, okay? In this parable, Jesus will use, or right, right before this parable, actually, at the beginning of Luke 18, is the parable of the persistent widow, where Jesus taught about the need for continual prayer without giving up. And then now in this parable, Jesus will use the prayers of two men to reveal the condition of their hearts. Our prayers reveal a lot about what we think about ourselves and about others and even about God. And through the prayers of a Pharisee and a tax collector, Jesus is going to show us that without humility, our view of our, ourselves and others and God will always be dangerously skewed. So I want to read this. It's a short passage. I want to read it and then pray, and then we will dig into this together. Luke 18, <clears throat> excuse me, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Father, we thank you for your word that we have just heard, and we pray now that you would take and use your spirit to work this word into our hearts, lead us to greater humility, in, uh, in our dependence and our need on Jesus Christ, and greater joy in knowing 
the, the tremendous pr- provision that you have made in, in him to us. We pray all this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, a friend of mine went to a prayer meeting at church that he had been attending. When he walked in, he heard the pastor and the church leaders praying for a particular family. We'll just call them the Joneses, okay? But it wasn't a, the, it, it wasn't a prayer that my friend had expected to hear. He was caught off guard. This is what the pastor was praying as he walked in. God, I pray that while I'm preaching, you would keep the stench of the Joneses away from me so that I'm not distracted and I can focus on what I need to say. My friend couldn't believe what he was hearing as the church leaders continued to pray. Then they asked God either to keep the Joneses from sitting in the front row or to stop them from smelling bad. At that point, my friend got up and he walked out of the prayer meeting. And when the pastor and the church leaders approached him afterward and asked him why he left, he explained how, how much it hurt his heart to hear them speak, uh, speak such disrespectful words about that family. And the pastor then replied to him, no, it's disrespectful for them to come in smelling like that. Now, I wish I was making this story up, but this is 100% true. And when my friend first told me this, I was was ticked. I was angry, right? I thought, how low of a human being do you have to be in order to view someone else that way? How self-righteous do you have to be in order to pray something like that to God about someone else? As if God was going to agree with you. Man, yeah, you know, it's about time they got some deodorant, right? I thought, man, there's no way I would ever treat somebody like that. And you might be sitting there thinking the same thing. How dare they? I would never do something like that. Or would you? Or would I? Maybe you've never said that kind of thing out loud to someone else, but have you ever put someone down in your mind? What about, a, what about that, that pastor and those church leaders? What are you thinking about them right now? Now, I admit that, that, that when I got angry, I thought it was righteous anger, right? Don't we all just want one time to be able to be righteously angry? Anybody with me on that? Yeah. And I'm always convicted by James that says human anger does not bring about the righteousness of God. Man, just once. Can't I just flip over a table and make a whip one time? I thought I had righteous anger. I felt compassion for that family. They had clearly been wronged, right? And I wanted justice for them. The, the, The people who were supposed to shepherd them had instead shamed them. And I was mad about it. I honestly thought that my anger was justified. But over time, that anger turned into conviction in my heart. You see, I began to realize that I was doing the exact same thing to this pastor and these church leaders that they were doing to that family. See, they were disgusted by the family and I was disgusted by them. They wanted God to punish the family, and I wanted God to punish them. They exalted themselves above the family, and in my mind and heart, I was miles ahead of them. 
I exalted myself above them. Now, maybe you're guilty of the same thing this morning. And I didn't share this story to trap you or lead you into sin. We need to understand that nobody puts sin into our hearts. They only expose what's already there. See, the reality is that you and I are more like those self-righteous church leaders than we would care to admit. We're all prone to view ourselves more highly than we ought, or the Bible wouldn't warn us to not do that, right? We're all prone to view ourselves more highly than we ought at the expense of God and others. And when we have a tendency to trust in our own righteousness as a result, then we have little compassion for others and little need for God's mercy But what Paul, or Paul, Jesus, is going to show us this morning through this parable is this. Here's our main point, okay? Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled by God, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted by God. So we must humble ourselves. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled by God, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted by God. So we must humble ourselves Humility, then, is what we're after, right? So we need to talk about humility this morning. Humility requires an honest view of ourselves, a compassionate view of others, and an exalted view of God. Humility requires an honest view of ourselves. That means that we need to see how prone we are to self-deception. Who is the worst sinner that you know? Is it, is it you? Pharisee certainly didn't think of himself that way. Look at verse 11. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, standing to pray was a normal practice in that culture, but considering his audience, Jesus was likely portraying this Pharisee as standing up in front where everyone could see him. And this is exactly something that Jesus spoke against in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. He says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in front in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. And so already this Pharisee is self-deceived in his posture of prayer. But what about the prayer itself? He starts off with five, we'll call them I'm nots. Okay. I'm not like other people. Separates himself from everybody else. Like this, just the general broad category. I'm, I'm above everybody. I'm not like anybody else. And then he lists specific types of people that he's not like. I'm not greedy. I'm not unrighteous. I'm not an adulterer. I'm, I'm not even like this tax collector. AKA, I'm not the worst of sinners. Self-deception happens when we give more credibility to our own view of ourselves than we do to God's view of us. What are your I'm nots? What are the things that you tell yourself that subtly convince you that you're better than you really are? I'm not an angry person. I'm not rude to my parents. I'm not a gossip. I'm not an addict. I'm not a racist. I'm not a Democrat, I'm not a Republican, I'm not either of those. 
I'm not same-sex attracted. I'm not gender-confused. I'm not pro-abortion. I'm not tattooed all over. I'm not a criminal. I'm not divorced. I'm not a murderer. I'm not an entitled celebrity. I'm not the Pharisee. I'm not the Pharisee. You see, self-deception works in subtleties. When I was a kid, I loved watching magicians, and magicians and con artists, they use sleight of hand and illusions rather than blatant moves that give away the fact that you're being tricked. They just pull you in, right? Their whole goal is distraction and redirection in order to fool you into believing a false reality. If your focus in, in life is on the I'm nots, you are using spiritual sleight of hand. And you'll deceive yourself into believing a lie about how you are living. Here's the reality for the Pharisee. He may not be greedy for money, but he is greedy for attention. He may not be unrighteous in terms of keeping the ceremonial law, but he is self-righteous, which is actually just another type of unrighteousness. He may not be physically adulterous, but he loves himself more than he loves God and others, which makes him spiritually adulterous. He is right about one thing, though. He's not like the tax collector. He's not like the tax collector. See, the Pharisee stood at the front for all to see. He had separated himself from others because of his pride. The tax collector separated himself as well, but not because of pride. It's because of his deep sense of his own unworthiness. He stood far off, Jesus says, because he knew that he had no right to be there at the temple in God's presence. He trembled. Raising one's eyes up to heaven during prayer was also a common practice back then, but the the tax collector couldn't even do that. Instead, he kept beating his chest in deep anguish and sorrow as if he's attempting to break through that outer shell of his body and and to get to the core of his wickedness, his his own heart. He wasn't self-deceived. The tax collector was self-aware. Pharisee had no sense of personal sin, no conviction of any wrong in his life, no sense of being unworthy to approach God. He was completely reliant upon himself. If humility requires an honest view of ourselves, then not only do we need to see how prone we are to self-deception, we also need to see how prone we are to self-reliance. Remember Jesus' audience here. Look at verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. What is self-reliance? Self-reliance is trusting in yourself. It's trusting in yourself. Self-reliance focuses on your own abilities and your own works. We already talked about the Pharisees, I'm not, but he didn't stop there, did he? Then he moves forward and says, uh, we'll call him his I do's. Look at verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. Old Testament law required fasting once a year on the Day of Atonement. The Pharisee essentially was telling God, listen, I do more than the law requires. I fast twice a week. Old Testament law also required only tithing of crops. The Pharisee essentially said, listen, I do more than the law requires. I tithe off of everything. This man never asks God for anything in his prayer. Did you notice that? 
Instead, he tells God all about his own acts of supposed righteousness. If self-deception works in subtleties, then self-reliance works in exaggeration, right? Pride always piles things on, always piles things on. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were notorious for doing this. Anytime we come to God embellishing our own works instead of pleading for him to work in us, that's a good clue that we've become self-reliant. What are the works that you tend to exaggerate or embellish? What are your I do's? I'm a founding member of the church. I never miss a Sunday. I'm going to go to Crosspoint next week. I serve in multiple ministries. I give online and I have it set up on auto pay. I read more than a chapter every day in my Bible. I never miss a prayer meeting. I'm a KJV only Bible reader. I thought that one would be a fun one. I'm an ESV only Bible reader. I'm a CSB, NASB, NLT. Pick your translation only Bible reader. I listen to multiple podcasts from solid Bible preachers and teachers. I'm a sermon junkie. Listen, God is never impressed with the accolades that we give to ourselves. You will never wow God with your I do's. It's impossible. He's always concerned with the attitude of our hearts. Is that not that the major theme that we've run through our series on our values? Why do we value these things? Because every one of them affects our hearts and shapes them more to look like Jesus. God's never pleased with a prideful heart. I think I've used this illustration before, so bear with me. I think it's helpful to think about again here. There was a time, I like to eat apples, and, and one time I pulled an apple out of the fridge, and, and it, looked, it, it looked delicious on the outside. When I, I don't like grainy apples, okay? You need to know this about me. So if you've ever given me an apple, if, if, it's, if it's mealy, I'm not having it, all right? I'll say thank you, but when you leave, it's going in the garbage. And I love you, but that's something that the Lord is working in my heart, right? That is an area of pride in my life. When I get an apple out, I love to test the outside of it, right, to, to make sure that it, you know, it's crisp and it feels good before I take a bite into it. Well, this apple I pulled out had a soft spot, one soft spot. So I took a knife and I, and I cut out that soft spot. And, I, and when I opened that apple up and, and, and the skin was removed, what did I see inside? This brown, mealy spot, right? And I'm like, oh, no. Right? This apple looked delicious, and so I took that knife and I cut deeper into the apple to, to try to, you know, remove that spot. And behind it was more, more brown, mealy apple. And before you know it, I had cut all the way around this apple and gotten all the way down to the core. Not a single part of this apple was good, except for the skin on the outside. It looked good on the outside, but it was literally rotten to the core. Where do you think those apple pieces ended up? Certainly not in my belly right? In the garbage. In the garbage. This is a convicting question for me, and I need to ask it to you. How deep does your self-reliance go? 
If God were to cut the rotten things out of your life, what fruit would be left? The problem with self-deception and self-reliance is that they both blind us to our own sin. We don't see the soft spots. We don't see the brown nastiness. We need to see the clarity, or, or we, so we need the clarity of God's word. We, we need the conviction of his Holy Spirit. We need the commitment of fellow believers all working together in our lives to lovingly expose our sin and give us an honest view of ourselves. I cannot see myself clearly by myself. So here's a way you can do that this week. Go read Psalm 19. I preached on that a, a, a few weeks ago. The end of that, David offers a prayer talking about his hidden sins, his unintentional sins. Read Psalm 51, another prayer of David. The, the, the man after God's own heart was a sinful man who needed mercy all the time. Psalm 51 is a beautiful prayer of confession. Get the clarity of God's word through these, Psalm 19 and Psalm 51. Turn to those, those passages then into prayers and ask the Holy Spirit to show you, as David asked, the hidden and willful sins in your own heart and in your life. Share then what the Spirit reveals to you through God's word. Share that with a committed brother or sister in Christ. And then ask that fellow believer if he or she sees any of those areas in your life or any other areas that you missed. Now, when you do that, you will be tempted to defend yourself if they give you answers. Don't do that. Don't do that. Instead, see it as an opportunity to confess your need for God's mercy in those areas and then ask the merciful God for the mercy that you need. You see, humility requires an honest view of ourselves. It also requires a compassionate view of others. What do we need then in order to view others compassionately? Well, first, we need to, to stop making assumptions. Look at verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. Now, immediately after hearing those words, the people listening to this parable, excuse me, would have made some assumptions. They, they would have heard the words Pharisee and tax collector and temple and automatically assumed that the Pharisee had every right to be there and the tax collector had no right to be there. They would have automatically assumed that God was going to bless the Pharisee and condemn the tax collector. They would have pictured the, the Pharisee and the tax collector in their minds and they would have imagined the Pharisee looking way better than the tax collector. They would have assumed that the Pharisee was righteous and the tax collector was not. They would have elevated the Pharisee and looked down upon the tax collector in their minds as soon as Jesus spoke that first sentence. Now a Pharisee and a tax collector went up to the temple to pray. They would have made all these assumptions and all of these assumptions were wrong. What assumptions have you made about others before? Whom do you look down upon? How often is your first reaction to criticize someone when you look at them? I want to give us an exercise and this is going to be uncomfortable. Okay, I want you to turn to the person on your left and I want you to tell them, look them in the eye and tell them this. You ready? I'm better than you. Come on, you can do it. You can do it. Listen, we're not going to move on until everybody does this. Okay. Some of you are thankful that nobody's on your left right now, right? 
Okay, so for you, I want you to turn to the person to your right, and I want you to say this to them. You ready? I hate you. I love that you're refusing to do this. I really do. Listen, I think the only people in the room right now that are excited about this are the, the kids in their, with their siblings, right? You know what? Listen, that should be incredibly uncomfortable for us to do, shouldn't it? For us to look at someone in the face and tell them those things. I, we need to feel the sting of hearing those words come out of our mouth, even in an exercise like this. Now, just so we're clear, kids, okay, is it right or wrong to say I'm better than you to someone? It's wrong, right? Is it right or wrong to say I hate you to someone? Wrong. It's wrong. Those are sinful and hurtful words to speak to somebody else. And hopefully none of you who were able to actually muster that out of your mouth, hopefully you didn't actually mean that. You're like, oh, sweet. This person sitting next to me, I've been waiting to say that forever, right? Thank you, Lord, for that opportunity. Listen, we all need to understand this truth, okay? This is so important for us to hear. I know we're laughing and uncomfortable in this moment, but listen, the moment that we begin to criticize someone else in our minds, we've already spoken those words in our hearts. It doesn't matter how, how you can't laugh that away. Jesus says that hating someone in your heart is the same as murdering them. It's a serious offense to look down on someone else. It's unloving to assume that you know what someone else is like when you really don't. It's unloving to elevate yourself over someone else. It's unloving to assume that you're not like other people. Pharisee centered his prayer around the assumption that he wasn't like other people, and in doing so, he condemned them while he praised himself. Aren't we prone to do the same thing? Self-deception works in subtleties. Self-reliance works in exaggerations. You see, we set the standard of righteousness for others that we assume that we have already reached ourselves. And every time we find failure in someone else, we move ourselves up another rung on the spiritual ladder and we leave them further beneath us. We exalt ourselves. If we're going to have a compassionate view of others, we need to stop making assumptions and then start making connections. Now, I think you'll like this one better. Turn to the person to your left, okay? And tell them, I'm no different than you. Now turn to the person on your right and say, I need the same thing as you. Was that easier? I hope so. Listen, no matter who we are, no matter what we look like, no matter what we've done, the one thing that connects all of us is our need for God's grace and mercy. There's not one person in this room that does not have that need. Parents, if your son or daughter lies to you and you find out, are you shocked and angry? Has your response ever sounded like this? Are you kidding me? Are you serious right now? Are we really having this conversation again? What did we literally just talk about yesterday? 
Now, I've responded to my own kids that way more times than I care to admit. What do you think that kind of response communicates to them about God's grace? What if the next time that happens, and it will, right? What if the next time that happens, you're able to calmly and lovingly sit down next to them, look them in the eyes, and say this, you know, what you did was wrong, and these are the consequences that you'll need to face as a result. But I want you to know something. I have been guilty of lying before too. And I know how tempting it can be to hide the truth because you don't want to get caught. And I know what it's like to give in to that temptation and see how my choice to sin leads to broken trust and pain in the people I really love. But oh my goodness, I'm so thankful that God does not lie to us when he promises that if we come to him for forgiveness, he will forgive us and give us all the grace that we need in order to keep going. Aren't you thankful for that too? What do you think that tells them about God's grace? When you can connect your own need for God's mercy to another person's need for God's mercy, you're viewing that person with compassion. And it opens the door for you to connect them then to the one who is mercy himself. How are you like the son or daughter who lies to you? Or the friend who betrays you? Or the coworker who takes credit for the project that you worked on together? Or the lady who steals your parking space at the grocery store? That one's particularly, right? Like, or, or the guy who's texting while, he's drives, while he drives past you on the highway? Or the wanted felon on the news? Or the obnoxiously rude parent at your kid's football game? Or the gossip in the coffee shop? Or the person who rants on social media? Or the person who's obviously fake on social media? Or the shady politician? Or the person who uses different pronouns? Or the abortion protester? The pro-abortion protester? Or the greedy, the unrighteous, the adulterer, the tax collector, the Pharisee? When you understand that you have the same need as the people around you, compassion will grow in your heart for them. Listen, when your heart breaks over your own sin, it will also break over theirs. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about excusing or enabling sin here. If you look at the sin of someone else and you think, well, I've done that before, so it's fine, it's okay, right? Who am I to judge? That's not the right connection that we're trying to make here. Sin always has consequences. Genesis 3 makes that very clear to us. And sin needs to have consequences in order for us to know that what we did was, in fact, wrong. We've offended the Holy One, the Almighty God, the Righteous One Himself. There's a difference between acting justly against sin and withholding forgiveness from another person. There's a difference. Compassion for others always leads to a longing for God's mercy to intervene in their lives. That's a good test for where your heart is at. Compassion for others always leads to a longing for God's mercy to intervene in their lives. God himself says mercy triumphs over judgment. When you find yourself starting to criticize someone, ask yourself, how am I guilty of the same thing? How has God shown me mercy in that area and how can I help that person seek God's mercy in their own life in that area? 
Humility requires an honest view of ourselves and a compassionate view of others. And those views ultimately come then from having an exalted view of God. What is an exalted view of God? Well, it's one that magnifies God's majesty. You see, the Pharisee's prayer is, is completely about himself. The fact that he even addresses God at the beginning of his prayer seems to be more of a ritual obligation than an actual gratitude. Right? He says, God, I thank you. But then the rest of his prayer makes it sound like he's really saying, God, you should be thanking me. He has no awe of God's majesty, no fear of God's power, no shame before a holy God. But then we get to the tax collector's prayer. Look at verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now this man, this tax collector, has a clear view of who God is. He's not strutting his way up to the front and telling God, now listen up. He knows he's approaching a holy God who is above all things, and God's holiness is overwhelming to this tax collector. God Almighty, Sovereign Lord, Most High God, the I Am, the Eternal One, the One True God, the Righteous One. These are just a handful of the names by which God is referred to in the Bible. Psalm 113, 4 and 5 says, The Lord is exalted above all nations, His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? the one enthroned on high. I read Psalm 94 or 96, four through nine this morning before we sang together. For the Lord is great and is highly praised. He's feared above all gods for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and enter into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Let the whole earth tremble before him. You see, the Bible leaves no room for a casual view of God. We must, he must be seen as supreme, most high, absolutely perfect, totally pure and incorruptible, completely sovereign, full of justice and exalted above all things and all people, including and especially you and me. What are the words that you use to describe this God? When was the last time that you were overcome by his holiness? When was the last time that you ascribed to him the glory of his name? When was the last time that the righteousness of God caused you to tremble when you thought about your own unrighteousness? You see, true righteousness is what Jesus is getting at in this parable. The Pharisee trusts in himself that he is righteous, and so he approaches God in pride as an equal. The tax collector, however, knows that he has no righteousness of his own. He knows that God alone is righteous. His awareness of God's holiness exposes the depths of his own unholiness, and he recognizes that he deserves nothing but God's wrath because of it. Tax collectors deeply convicted by his own sin before the almighty God. So, so why then would he even dare approach God in the first place? If, if he deserves God's wrath, why would he expect to receive anything but that? Notice his prayer. He doesn't come to God with a list of personal accolades like the Pharisee does. He knows that his greatest need is to be saved 
from God's wrath, and he knows that only God can save him from it. And so the tax collector musters up the courage to ask for only one thing. What is it? Mercy. Mercy. And this is pivotal because an exalted view of God magnifies not only his majesty, but also his mercy. Remember who is giving this parable. It's Jesus himself, the righteous one, is sharing this story with a group of self-righteous people who looked down on others. God Almighty is approaching these people with a story about how to approach him. The one before whom all the earth should tremble is revealing his heart here through the prayer of a tax collector. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That phrase, have mercy, in the original language means to have compassion, to show concern, to turn away wrath. This is why Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem as he's telling this parable. This is exactly what happened at the cross. The most high God in his compassion and his concern for sinners took this wrath that we deserve because of our sin and he turned it away from us. He, he redirected it onto his own son. You see, sin has consequences. And the ultimate consequence for our sin is death. Because of his holiness, God cannot allow sin to go unpunished. That would make him unholy. That would make him unjust. He cannot excuse or enable sin in us. But in his love for sinners, it's, his love for sinners is as holy as his wrath against sin. And in that love, he longs to show sinners mercy and forgiveness. This is why he gave us his word. This is why he sent his son. And the only way that he can both pour out his wrath against sin and pour out his mercy on sinners is through this perfect sacrifice of his one and only son on the cross. Jesus willingly bore the full wrath of God, the Father, because of our sin. And he died the death that we should have died. Jesus was condemned in our place. In humility, Christ became obedient to death on a cross so that all who put their trust in him can be forgiven and made actually righteous in him. And he rose from the dead to prove his own righteousness and to give eternal life to all who come to him for mercy. Romans tells us that he was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. Have you come to this Jesus for mercy. If you don't think you need it right now, then I need to ask you, how do you plan on proving your righteousness to God when you are required to stand before him at the end of your life, naked and exposed, and have to give him an account? Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. If you don't think that God has enough mercy for all that you've done wrong, oh, hear me. There is no need for shame. There is no need for shame. Lift your eyes to heaven. We just talked about this last week. Paul says this in Colossians 3. Set your minds on things above. Why? That's where Christ is. The risen Jesus Christ, seated on the right hand, at the right hand of God on the throne of mercy. Jesus is the very embodiment of God's mercy and he beckons you. He beckons you, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest and gentle and lowly of heart. 
You know what that means? I have plenty of mercy for you. Why wouldn't you come? Why wouldn't you come to this Savior? Cry out to him this morning, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you know what? Mercy is exactly what you'll get. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. It's God's majesty that exposes our need for his mercy. It's his holiness that exposes our need for his help. It's his righteousness that exposes our need for his rescue. And we find the most glorious display of his majesty and the most incredible display of his mercy in the person and the work of his son, Jesus Christ. If you only magnify God's majesty, you'll run away from him in fear when you sin. If you only magnify God's mercy, you won't treat your sin seriously enough to seek forgiveness for it. To keep your view of God's majesty and his mercy in balance, you have to look at Jesus Christ. You have to stay focused on him, study him, pursue him, know him, proclaim him, thank him, worship him. The more you do that, the more you'll grieve over your own sin. But you won't wallow in grief. You'll run to Jesus for mercy and forgiveness. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, who has passed through the heavens, this Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Isn't that amazing? But one who's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. In, in other words, he's righteous. He's not like anybody else. And yet he came as one of us. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy to find grace to help us in time of need. There's a difference between approaching God in pride and approaching God in bold humility. If we try to grace God's throne with our prideful presence, then we will always walk away empty-handed. But hear me, if we approach the throne of grace in humility and make this bold ask for mercy, that is exactly what we will get. At the end of the parable, Jesus says this about the tax collector in verse 14. I tell you, this one, this tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's not the ending that the people expected to hear in that parable. They thought the Pharisee would have been justified because they thought that they could justify themselves. But it is God who justifies. It is God who declares a person to be righteous. That's what it means to be justified. And he justifies the one who humbly comes to him looking for mercy. You see, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled by God. And everyone who humbles himself will be exalted by God. So we must humble ourselves. Humility requires an honest view of ourselves, a compassionate view of others, and an exalted view of God. Don't trust in yourself for righteousness. I've done that. It doesn't work. Trust the righteous one, Jesus Christ. May we not be so foolish as to approach him with our own accolades. Instead, may we humbly approach him with our own need and see that he's a merciful savior. When we come to him in humility, we can know that we will never walk away empty-handed.
Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your gift of mercy in Jesus Christ, and we pray that you would be exalted through him as we come to you as sinners who need this mercy every moment of our lives. Would you help us, Lord, to grow in humility, to take on the same attitude as Christ himself, who humbled himself, became obedient as a servant, even to death on a cross. And now you have exalted him and will exalt him in the end of days. And those who put our trust in him will be exalted with him. Father, you be glorified through your merciful son and draw our hearts to greater dependence upon him and confidence in him and not in ourselves. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response to this.